Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's good to see all of you this morning. We've got a number of visitors with us this morning. We're very, very glad that you've come. I know it's a holiday weekend and many people are traveling. Uh, we're so thankful that you've come to worship God with us this morning. We want you to know that we care about you, that we would love to have uh, the opportunity to visit with you and greet you. And especially if you have any questions or want to know, you know, um, why do we do what we do as a, as a church family? Um, some of the things that we do in our worship, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you. And so, uh, uh, don't hesitate to ask questions. We, we encourage that. We love that. And uh, we, we'd like to get to know you better. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. This is the third part this morning of a three-part study on the subject of cultural intelligence. And the reason why we've undertaken this study is because Christians, it seems, more and more are being put in very difficult situations. Um, because of our faith and because of our desire to know and to serve God, to be loyal to Jesus Christ and to show Him living in us, there are situations more and more in our society, in school, at work, where we're put on the spot, it feels like, even if it may not always be reality, it feels that way. And the question is, how do we handle this in a way that not only can we honor God, because that's first and foremost what we want to do in every situation. How can we please God? But how can we make the right kind of difference, of impact on the world around us? You know, it's not hard to make an impact. Anybody can make a mess of things. Anybody can, can, can throw a rock in a pond and make ripples. Anybody can do that. But how do you make the right kind of impact, the kind of impact that Jesus wants you to make? How can you do that with your friends and your loved ones and your acquaintances, the co-workers and the society around us? The three lessons that we've undertaken began two weeks ago with the idea of being useful. We need to recognize that we are salt and light. That's what Jesus calls us. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world and God has sent you into the world to be different. And so if you never feel different, if you never feel a little bit out of place as a Christian, then there's probably something askew in our faith. If we never ever feel like we're, we're different and if the world never sees a difference in us. And so the challenge is be useful, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. But last week we talked about being prepared because God says, even when you live and do the right thing, even when 
you try to bless other people and you try to be a good citizen and you pay your taxes and you're honest in your dealings with your superiors and your, your people at work, even when you live and try to bless others, you still are going to face resistance and be ready for that. Be ready always to give an answer, a defense to those who ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. First Peter 3 verse 15. This morning, I want us to focus on a third concept, a third idea. If we're going to be culturally intelligent, we've got to be useful and we've got to be prepared, but we must also be hopeful. Who knows what God can do? If you got your Bibles and you haven't already done so, open to 2 Timothy chapter 2 from where Rocky just read a moment ago. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're just going to look at verses 22 through 26. This passage has to do with God's servant being hopeful. There are people that are going to be in our lives, and there are probably some in your life right now that you are tempted to write off, to say, I've had plenty of interactions with that person and they will never, they will never obey the gospel. They will never turn to Jesus and submit to him. Never will that happen. There are people in our experience that we're gonna say never in a million years would that person change. You're not gonna be very culturally intelligent if you don't have hope for people. And the basis for us having hope for people is found in this passage. If you look at the second Timothy chapter two, look at what it says. It says in verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. The hope that we have as Christians for everyone, and it doesn't matter how antagonistic or ugly or mean-spirited or vindictive or divisive somebody is, our hope is that people will be saved because that's God's hope. That's what he wants. And if you're here and you're a visitor this morning, I want you to hear this. The Bible says that God wants you to know him more than anything else in this life. He wants to have a relationship with you. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, God is not willing that anyone should perish. Everybody that is lost is lost against God's will. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all to come to repentance. Jesus, when he came to this world, said, I've come to seek and to save people who are lost, Luke 19, verse 10. And because God feels that way about people, if we're going to be culturally intelligent, if we're going to engage with the people around us in helpful ways, we're going to have to be hopeful as God is. We're going to have to look at other people and never get to a point where we're slamming doors and writing people off and saying, that person's just, they're they're always going to be that way. As God's people, we want to be hopeful, perpetually hopeful, prayerful, longing for people who are apart from God to come home to him. Because all of us recognize that once we were apart from God ourselves and we know what it's like to come back to him and we want others to know that experience as well. We wanna be hopeful. That's what 2 Timothy 2 verses 22 through 26 is all about. It's about being hopeful and saying, who knows what God can do? If I can maintain the kind of attitude, the kind of demeanor, the kind of example that Jesus commands me to, Who knows what God can do through those circumstances? Cultural intelligence. 
As you look at the, the passage this morning, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. What we notice in this passage are three keys, three principles for making an impact and being hopeful with people. You want to make sure that you have God's best interests in your relationships with others. You want to keep doors open. You want to provide ways for people to know Jesus Christ. Here is what you and I must do. Three things. Number one, we must know, first of all, what to avoid. You want to look at the people in your life and you long for them to come back to God. You long for them to have a relationship with him. You must first know what to avoid. And as you look at the passage, there are some very clear warnings in this passage about what Paul commands Timothy, a young preacher, to avoid. Look at verse 22, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee, it says, youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do, verse 23, with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant, that's you, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. What are we supposed to avoid? Number one, look at verse 22. We are to avoid youthful passions Some translations say, flee youthful lusts. And when we see that word lust or passion, oftentimes people think of it in a sexual sense. They think of passion and lust, and certainly the Bible uses the word that way. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking to a young preacher. Timothy was probably 30 or so. He's a young preacher working with a congregation and there's lots of problems in the church. And and Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you're gonna be the right kind of example, you're gonna have to flee youthful passions. What are young people often known for? And I know I'm painting with a broad brush this morning, so please don't be offended, young people. But what are young people usually known for? They're usually known for being somewhat impatient really idealistic, a a clear sense of what's right and wrong, but not very patient with people. They're sometimes known for being reckless, like a bull in a china shop relationally. They, 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 They wander into relationships and they're not thinking about what's best and they're not thinking about other people. They're just, they're just reckless sometimes. Young people are known oftentimes for being stubborn and not listening to reason. And so all of these things, being, uh, being angry quickly, all these things, Paul would say, these are youthful passions. These are, you know, you're full of energy and you're full of zeal and you're full of truth, but be careful about those youthful passions, Timothy, because those are not going to bring the kind of resolution and the kind of knowledge of God that God wants when you behave yourself that way. So, before you get on social media and angrily rant about something, you ought to remember and stop and think about this passage. Flee youthful passions. Before you say some things that you're gonna regret and before you say some things in the heat of the moment that you realize even in the heat of the moment, I shouldn't be saying this, stop because you want people to be saved. You want people to come to know Jesus Christ and you are killing your influence and example with them when you refuse to flee youthful passions. But not only that, the Bible goes on to say we should avoid controversies. Now, it doesn't say avoid every controversy. 
Jesus certainly entertained controversies. Certainly, obviously, people came to Jesus and asked him about questions, and he would answer their questions. But notice what it says. Flee from foolish and ignorant controversies. Brothers and sisters and friends, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, because the Bible does. There are some arguments that are happening in your life and in society that just don't need to go any farther, that you just don't need to feel like you should be a part of, because they are foolish. The word foolish in the language, that, the Greek language, the word foolish there means something that is without profit. It's unwise. And the word ignorant means it is unlearned. In other words, people are just saying stuff without any kind of evidence, without any kind of basis for it. They're just saying things. And the Bible says you want to be the right kind of influence. You want to be hopeful that people are saved. Don't get caught in certain controversies that are foolish and ignorant. Just don't get caught up in that. There's no reason for it. You're expending energy when you do that. When I was younger, I got online and I started arguing back and forth with people. I was a lot younger in those days. I started arguing online with people that in, in Christian evidences, they would, they would throw out all kinds of things and, and, and I, would, I would jump on that and I'd go research and I'd study and I'd learn and, and I felt like, you know, as a Christian, I had an obligation to defend what was, what was true and what was right. And I felt like I might've been doing some good. I don't know, maybe I did. But there were some controversies that arose in those forums online that were just silly. And after a while of doing that, I stopped and I realized, you know what? I am expending an extraordinary amount of time on these controversies and the people that I'm talking to, they're, they're not saying, you know what? That's a good point, John. I'm glad you brought that, I'm glad you said that. They're not saying that, they're just bringing up another one and another one and another one. That's all they're doing. Be careful. And that leads to Paul's next exhortation. He says, avoid quarrels. A quarrel is an argument. Don't get involved in heated, long arguments. There's a rule of thumb about arguing. I'll share it with you this morning. The rule of thumb about arguing with other people is this. In every dispute, whether you're husband and wife, whether you're parent and child, whether you're uh, an employer, an employee, doesn't matter. In every dispute, in every argument, there comes a point in that argument when it stops being about who's right. And instead, it starts being about who gets the last word. I'm just telling you, think about your arguments that you've had in your life. There comes a point in every argument when it's not about who's right and wrong anymore. It's about who gets to say the last word. And when you've gotten to that point, stop. Because that's what Jesus calls meekness. In Matthew 5, 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There was a missionary in Jamaica many years ago who was teaching about Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And he asked his class of young people, what is meekness? And a little boy raised his hand and he said, meekness is a soft answer to harsh questions. Blessed are the meek, a soft answer to harsh questions, letting other people have the last word. Paul says, you wanna be hopeful? Don't feel like you've got to continue controversies and quarrels and don't even feel like you need to be a part of every single controversy. Just don't. Many years ago, about 100 years ago, Argentina and Chile 
The two nations, they were at odds over a border dispute. They almost went to war. And when they finally resolved that border dispute, these two nations, they put a statue of Jesus on a mountain near their border. The statue is still there. It's called Christ of the Andes. And you know what happened? They, they, they said, as they put this statue up, they said, may these mountains crumble before the peace that we've made here is dissolved. And it wasn't long before the people on the Chilean side of the border said, we're insulted because when they put that statue of Jesus up there on that mountain, his back is towards us. And they were really upset and there was this growing unrest in this movement and you know, th th we've been slighted, we've been disrespected. And finally one wise newspaper writer wrote an editorial in the Chilean newspaper and he said this, my countrymen, it seems that the Argentinians need Jesus to watch over them even closer than he watches over us. So everything was fine. And everybody laughed and it was, it was diffused. There are some controversies you just don't need to be a part of, brothers and sisters. Don't feel like just because somebody says something that you have to respond. Know what to avoid. Now secondly, if you want to be a good example, a good influence for Jesus Christ, you gotta know what to do as well. The servant of the Lord should not quarrel, it says in verse 24, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see that? And not only that, when you look back up at verse 22, he says, don't, don't give in to youthful passions, but pursue faith and love and peace and righteousness. Pursue those things. What does Paul say that you and I are supposed to do if we want to be culturally intelligent? Number one, he says, you better give attention to your inner life. A lot of us just react. When somebody insults us, offends us, hurts us, disrespects us, we just react just immediately. But this says, don't do that. Don't, don't give in to youthful passions. You give yourself, give your attention, verse 22, to righteousness and faith and love and peace. You think about those things because that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus is somebody who always does what's right. That's righteousness. Jesus is someone who always looks for God's will and God's way. That's faith. Jesus is someone who wants other people's best interest. That's love. Jesus is a peacemaker and he wants you to be a peacemaker as well. Give attention to those things and ask yourself the question, do I have the mind of Christ in me? Philippians 2 verse 5. Give attention to your inner life because otherwise you're just going to react, 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 react to whatever's happening and your reactions are not going to be godly and they're not going to be helpful for the Lord's cause. Secondly, in knowing what to do, verses 24 and 25 clearly indicate that Christians, that's you and me, are to teach the truth. We're to teach the truth. Notice in the passage, notice the words, servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but he must be kind, able to teach. That's competence. And the Bible is saying, you wanna serve Jesus Christ, you wanna be an influence, an ambassador for him, you must attain some degree of competence in talking about biblical things. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a scholar and know everything about everything in the Bible. I don't know anybody that does. But what it does mean is you know who the Lord is, you know why you believe what you believe, and you're able to articulate those things to others. Able to teach, be competent. And notice what we're hoping for. We're noticing at the end of verse 24 that people will repent leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. People can know the truth and the truth will make them free, John 8, verse 32. The gospel, the New Testament is truth, it's reality. And one of the things that we're gonna have to do in order to be effective influences for Jesus is when there's an opportunity, say things that are true. You don't have to sit down and have an hour-long lesson in order to teach the truth. Sometimes you can teach the truth in a bumper sticker. Very short, pithy statements that are true and that are honoring to God and that bring people closer to Him and understanding what He's all about. Teach the truth competently and clearly. And then third, love the people you teach. Love the people you're talking to. And I want you to notice especially what Paul has envisioned here. He's talking about people who are opponents. Look at verse 25. People who are opponents, correcting them with gentleness. We're not talking about people who just, they're just, you know, receiving what's being said and they're eagerly saying, I agree with that. I agree with that. That's a great point. I agree with that. These are people who are in opposition. And the Bible says you're correcting these people gently kindly because you love them and you care about them and you're going to take sometimes some abuse and some some things that are offensive to you but as a Christian as a child of God you keep on loving those people in Africa there was a village where a where a village elder had watched there were some missionaries in the village for many years and he had watched those missionaries work and one day he had never become a Christian himself but one day he said to one of the missionaries you know I think you Christians are a lot like that mango tree over there, large mango tree. And the missionary said, well, what respect do you mean that? We're like mango trees. He said, the mango tree produces its fruit and the fruit is all on the branches of the tree and little children walk by and they beat that tree with sticks and some fruit falls off. And the young ladies come in the, in the early morning to feed their families and they take some longer sticks and they beat those sticks. And the young men come with machetes and they cut off branches so that they can get some fruit. And the tree just keeps yielding fruit. And then at the end of the season when the mangoes are finished, that tree is bloody, it's beaten and it's, it's, it's in shambles. Its branches are broken and cut. That's what you Christians look like. But then the neat thing about the mango tree is that the next season it bears even more fruit. That's what you Christians are like, that village elder said, not long before he became a Christian himself. You gotta keep loving the people you teach. That's the point. You can't give up on people and you can't look at people and say, well, there's just no hope. As long as there is life and as long as there is opportunity, as long as there is the Lord, there's hope for people. Keep loving the people you teach. And then third, what would the Bible tell us about being hopeful? know the goal. One of the biggest challenges in this whole cultural intelligence series is to remember who we're really fighting and what we're really fighting about. Because oftentimes we make it personal. We make it all about me and how I feel and what happened to me. And that's not even the goal. That's not even what we're trying to do. The goal, as you look at this passage, is for people's souls to be one. Stop trying to win arguments and start trying to win souls. That's what this passage is teaching us. Stop trying to be right all the time and instead try to bring people closer to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. 
Look at how he articulates this. He talks about the possibility of change in verse 25. He uses the word perhaps. And think about where Timothy is, this young preacher preaching to a congregation, not unlike this one. And people are all over the map in terms of their understanding of things and what they believe. And he says, Timothy, perhaps some of those people who oppose you, some of those people who are against you, some of those people who are even violently opposed to you, perhaps they might change one day. There's that possibility. Don't lose that sense of possibility. Not only that, but there is the providence of change. The language that is used here is perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And all that means, brothers and sisters and friends, is that God at various times can use circumstances and he can use people and he certainly always, without fail, uses his word, the truth. And he can, in his providence, bring them to a point where they understand and they see and they make the decision to repent. That's all it means. That God will use you and use your example and use your influence and use your teaching. Maybe God will be the one that uses those things. You'll be the one that God uses to help somebody else to come to a knowledge of the truth. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, maybe. And then third, the significance of the change. Look at verses 25 and 26 in the language that's used. The people that are not Christians are, in verse 25, opponents. They are people who need to repent, in verse 25. They are people who do not know the truth, verse 25. They are people who have not yet come to their senses, verse 26. They are people, verse 26, who are in the snare of the devil. They don't see themselves that way, perhaps. They don't have any idea about any of these truths, but these are reality about them. They have been captured by him to do his will, it says at the end of verse 26. These are people who are lost and ensnared. And the significance of the change is that if you and I will not give up hope, if we'll continue to love people and to tell them the truth in grace and in love, that God may provide a circumstance where they're able to see one more time and obey and change. The case in point in all of the New Testament is Saul of Tarsus. If you know anything at all about Saul of Tarsus, he violently persecuted the church. He was dragging Christians to prison. And he was enthusiastic about his work. It's not like he had any qualms or conscience problems about this. Paul was enthusiastic about this. And if ever there was somebody in this world that you would look at and say, that guy will never be a Christian, it'd be Saul of Tarsus. But God, in his grace, sent Jesus Christ to appear to him on the road to Damascus one day. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul came to know who Jesus was. He came to a knowledge of the truth and he escaped the snare of the devil himself. And I suspect as he writes these words, he is reminding himself of where he once was. Brothers and sisters and friends, I don't believe while this life persists and while life and opportunity and our mental faculties are about us, I don't believe there is ever a time when it's hopeless. And I hope you don't either. And if you want to be culturally intelligent, if you want to make a difference for Jesus, you're going to have to keep that hope alive in your heart because it's God's hope, not yours. 
because it's what he wants for people, even more than you want that for people. Be a servant of Jesus. Make the right kind of impact on the people around you. Don't give up. And if you don't do anything else for the people in your life, pray. Pray for them, pray for them by name, pray for them repeatedly, pray for them all the time because the people in your life that need to know the Lord, they can't do anything about the fact that you're praying for them. And who knows how God answers prayers. Thanks for your kind attention to the study this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a New Testament Christian. If you're not a Christian, Jesus says he wants you to come to him more than anything else. He wants that so badly that he died on a cross for you. And if you're ready to make the decision to put Christ on, to, to be a Christian, the way that somebody does that, it's very clearly spelled out in the New Testament. The New Testament says we must believe in who Jesus is and in what he says, what he claims for himself. We must believe those things about him because there's so much evidence to convince us that's true. Unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins, he said. We must repent of our sins. We must turn away from the things that we know are wrong, that God says are wrong, and live for him from now on. We must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. With our mouth, we say, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. And then we must be baptized, immersed in water. And the Bible describes baptism as the point, as the time when somebody who is outside of Christ enters into a covenant relationship with him. You contact the blood of Christ in the waters of baptism. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord, Acts 22, verse 16. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, or if you'd like to respond and you just wanna ask for prayers, or you just wanna know more, you're just curious about some of the things that we've said and done, we'd love the opportunity to talk to you about those things further. Won't you make your need known this morning coming forward while together we stand and while we sing?